Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folta. I'm your podcast host and a scientist who really cares that you understand what's happening in science in the world around us. Now, we're still sitting in the middle of COVID-19, and the podcast has had a few guests who've shared some ideas about COVID-19, both the disease itself, some of its challenges, some of its other manifestations. One of the things that we have witnessed during this unprecedented time is this massive mobilization of resources to find a vaccine. There's no cure for COVID-19, and it's spreading. The only solution is really to not catch the virus. You know, hand washing, wearing a mask, physical distance, staying home, all that stuff. Therapeutics, you know, they, they, their effects have been debated. And, and even things like remdesivir and steroid treatments, they've helped us keep people alive in more severe cases. But there still is no silver bullet to stop the virus. But the number of companies, actually a hundred and something to be sort of precise, have really been working 24-7 to create a vaccine that will work for uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And one story of the vaccine developments was encapsulated beautifully by today's guest. And it allowed a peek into the inner workings of a startup company that was working to turn a crisis into opportunity. Today, we're speaking with Catherine Elton. She's the senior editor at Boston Magazine and coming to us probably from Boston, right? <laughs> I'm actually in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but right across the river. Okay, right across. The, okay, I've been there. That's a beautiful place. Well, um, But thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks. Well, um, I, I read your original article and I actually read it when it first came out and then have read it since. And it's much more meaningful to me today than it was originally because of the progress that's been made in this field. And um, let, let's really start maybe back in the beginning. Your whole story is centered on a company called Moderna, which breaks down to modern RNA uh, or mode RNA rather. What makes their approach unique in the development of a vaccine for COVID? So Moderna is a company that's been pioneering a new drug delivery platform. And in the case of vaccines, it's working on several, but right now the most important would be the one for COVID-19. Um, the vaccine does not use a live virus or an, a live attenuated or a dead virus. It uses a strand of RNA that codes for uh, an antigen on the spike protein of COVID-19. And that's injected into the body and then the body mounts an immune response. So basically what the platform does is shift the site of vaccine production from the factory to the human body. Yeah, that's really neat because that's a huge bottleneck. Normally, 
we're producing the viruses and their um, parts in things like eggs. And, you know, this is a huge undertaking in other companies that we've uh, discussed um, previously on this and my other podcast are doing this in plants, you know, using plants to develop it. But it still takes a long time to make this vaccine as it currently exists. So the idea of injecting the nucleic acid and letting our body make the antigen is a big step forward. So when did this company first get on your radar? Well, they came onto my radar in 2012 um, and they had just come out of stealth mode. I think they'd been operating for about a couple of years under wraps. And um, I wrote a story about them and they were a relatively small operation then. They were not working in vaccines, um, focused more on rare disease on, and oncology. And um, it was an interesting company because it had this, this platform that, you know, promises and still promises because there's no drugs approved yet, but promises to be a real game changer um, by inter introducing a whole new way of making drugs and making vaccinations. Um, so I wrote a piece about them and it had a real sort of all-star kind of uh, group that they'd gathered. Bob Langer was involved. Um, Tim Springer was involved. A lot of big name people. Um, and it was, you know, exciting. There was a lot of promise, but, but, you know, of course, you know, we're still here many years later and, and they don't yet have a drug on the market. Um, but it was interesting to be there sort of when they first got going and to get a glimpse of it. Well, what were their major targets originally? You mentioned oncology, but I seem to remember something with Zika and other types of viruses. Yes. So when they first started, I mean, I, my story came out in 2013, and then it was very shortly after that they added vaccines um, into, their, into their work. But at, the, at that time, they were looking at producing proteins for, for people with rare diseases that, that needed those proteins that couldn't produce them that had, um, and they were also looking into oncology and they're still pursuing that. Um, and cancer vaccines has become, you know, much more popular, um, since then, but they added, I think it must've been late 2013, perhaps that they also started pursuing vaccines. And now, you know, they have, they have a number, they're still focusing on those other areas, although now that what they're most known for, of course, is pursuing vaccines and in particular, the COVID-19 vaccine. Well, we touched on it briefly in the beginning, but could you maybe go a little deeper into what makes the mRNA component of a vaccine more attractive than the old way of doing it? Well, for one, because you're not injecting someone with a, uh, a virus, they're thought to be safer, at least, you know, in, in that regard. Um, but what's most attractive, I think, is the agility um, and the speed. So they don't need a virus to make a vaccine. They just need the DNA of the virus, and then they can craft the mRNA that they need um, on a computer and then, and then make the vaccine and they can, then it's just a tweak. They don't need an entire new facility to make every new drug. It's the same setup. It's the same, um, factory, let's say they just tweak the MRNA of what they're making. So it's hugely scalable. It's very agile and it's very fast. So just for the listeners that maybe are unfamiliar with this, you can essentially get the sequence of any given 
virus, like in this case, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and design this uh, essentially a vaccine that would allow you to transcribe lots of that mRNA associated with that virus. And one of the beautiful things about it is that you can put in multiple sequences if there are variants of the virus, which is really cool. And you can do this in a variety of ways, but you can synthesize RNA, but you also can do it, meaning base by base, but you also can use what are called in vitro transcription systems, which is essentially putting in the components that would require, that would allow a piece of DNA to be transcribed or create the mRNA strand and then purify the RNA. So I, I would guess that maybe one of the other things about this then is just the speed at which you could produce a, a new vaccine. You could probably do it in weeks time rather than years. Yeah, it's hugely fast. And that's what, what they did with their uh, COVID-19 vaccine. They produced it from the date that they got the sequence out of China of the virus till when they shipped it to the NIH, it was 42 days. Um, and that a vaccine has never been made that fast before. And a traditional vaccine could never have been made that fast, that fast before. And, and that was really the gist of your story, your recent story in, in Boston Magazine, which was really fascinating. And, and for me as a scientist, it resonated with me in that I felt everything that the players in the story were feeling, you know, that sense of here's an opportunity, you got to jump at it, you know, staring at the ceiling at night and then working with a team to make something accelerate. It, it was really cool. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But where, where is the vaccine right now with respect to human trials? So they are going to be moving into phase three trials right now with 30,000 volunteers. And that was recently announced. And that's, that's the last phase. And, and they're hoping that by, you know, the end of the year, by early next year, they might be ready with the vaccine. So this is the biggest phase. They did phase, um, phase one, they started in, in March, and now they're moving into phase three. For those of you who follow pharmaceutical development, th this is crazy fast. And the fact that, you know, we, we typically you see regulatory hurdles and other uh, impediments that typically a company would go through phase one, phase two, phase three may take 10 years. And I can think of a number of drugs that, that have been that way. But because of the unprecedented need and the type of system that it can be mobilized so quickly, this is happening in, in weeks rather than years. Do you think that there is a public perception problem with that, that maybe it's going too fast and uh, maybe not safe? I think some people are definitely concerned about that. And, 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 I, and I see that in the press. Um, I think at the beginning, there was some concern that, you know, the phase one started without animal trials. Um, one thing that's true is that Moderna has done a number of phase one trials and some phase two. And so for these early trials that established safety, they had already established that. And that's why one of the reasons they got the go ahead to not have complete animal data in before they moved into humans, because they'd had so many other phase one um, trials, well, not so many, but a number of them, you know, at 10 probably um, with other drugs, a thousand, just over a thousand volunteers had been injected before. So they were they were fairly confident on the safety. But I think other people are concerned now as we head into phase three, 
you know, usually these things, you have to watch a population for a while and it doesn't look like there's going to be that time um, allotted to it. Yeah, but I think it's a little bit different because of the nature of the vaccine. I I signed up for the trial. Um, I don't know if it was with Moderna, but I signed up online to be included in clinical trials of these vaccines because I understand what this is and how it works. And with that, I'm very comfortable with lending myself to the solution. So I I, I know that there's something like 50% of people saying they will not accept a vaccine for COVID-19. And we need to be somewhere like 70% to achieve herd immunity. So has the company really thought at all about a communication strategy or how they would cross that bridge? I think it's going to take a huge effort of communicating. It is a new platform. I, you know, I'm not sure if people are concerned more about the speed or about the fact that it's a new platform. But I do think that that there needs to be huge efforts to explain to people what safety precautions were taken, um, despite the accelerated speed. And I also think that because we're in the midst, this isn't abstract. We're in the midst of this. People's patience is wearing thin. Schools are getting canceled or or remote, 100% remote. uh, Districts are deciding. I think that as time wears on, people may be more willing to put aside some concerns or watch some other people go first um, and then get on board. But um, I have a feeling that as time wears on and there's no other solutions, people are going to come around. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's not so much convincing them what mRNA is. It's basically the idea that people are dying, that our economy is suffering, that it's only going to get worse, and that we, in order to do this, to step up is really one of the most patriotic things you can do is get the freaking vaccination. <laughs> but, but, but just to kind of along that line, um, you mentioned that there were phase one and phase two trials that were very rapidly done and quickly done. Were there any adverse effects or what were the results of those trials? So the, those trials are, are, are for safety. And in terms of the safety, I mean, there was, it did show efficacy, but that's not what those trials are powered to conclusively find. They're really looking for safety and in phase one, they recently released, they released some interim data and then recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, the results. And there were some, there were no major adverse effects. That's what I want to state very clearly. There were some adverse effects in terms of people running a fever. I think the highest, someone ran 103 fever, everyone recovered, and there were no major adverse effects. And so the safety has been established in those trials. Yeah, I I read some of the uh, articles about the alleged adverse effects and the, you know, the guy who had 103 fever and people putting this in as a red flag when really what this is, is this is a demonstration of efficacy. This says that the body is mounting a response against the virus. And it's kind of like when you go get your flu shot, you know, you feel a little malaise that day and your arm gets a little sore. It's because there's something happening. <laughs> you know, so so it, to me, this is actually a positive that is being spun to appear to be something negative, you know, which, which is really unfortunate. You mentioned there are other virus platforms that they've done. Where are they with the other ones? Like, say, Zika, are those moving along through phase one, phase two, phase three? 
Zika is in phase one, and they have a few other uh, vaccines, a couple of other vaccines in phase one and two. They don't have anything in phase three, except now the, their COVID-19 vaccine will, is moving into phase three. The farthest along they got uh, before that was with their CMV vaccine, which finished phase two and is in preparation for phase three right now. Well, let's spend some time talking about the story of the development of the COVID-19 uh, vaccine, or actually it's the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Uh, you know, your article describes this relationship between Stefan Bensel and someone named Barney Graham, uh, that this kind of relationship with NIH between this NIH and the company was instrumental in really mobilizing vaccine development. So w what was happening there? So Moderna had worked with the NIH on the Zika uh, vaccine. And so they had a, a working relationship already. And so that was instrumental. Um, you know, when Stefan Bansell first read about this weird pneumonia outbreak in, in China, he immediately fired off an email to Barney Graham at the NIH and said, you know, do you know anything about this? What do you know? And he was in France. Um, and a few hours later, he gets an email back saying, we don't, we're on it. You know, we don't know what it is yet, but we know, um, you know, I think he said if it's a coronavirus or if it's a SARS virus, we know, um, we know that mRNA works because of the work that they had done beforehand together. And um, Stefan Bansell is someone who has been over the years establishing many relationships with people working on vaccines. And he even told me that sometimes his workmates said, you know, why are you going all to all these all these meetings, all these, you know, Gates Foundation or working, you know, Welcome Trust or all these contacts he had, you know, thinking that it maybe was not exactly central to his work. But it was all those relationships that he'd been building over the years uh, because of his personal interest in infectious diseases that really, really have paid off in spades for, for getting this vaccine ready now. Well, one of the critical watersheds in the timeline of this was January 13th, 2020. And that was the day that the nucleic acid sequence was released. And why was that such a critical moment? Because it meant they could get to work. As soon as they had that sequence, that's all they needed. So, you know, the the Friday before it was released, uh, one of the people at Moderna, project manager, portfolio manager, Hamilton Bennett, had been on the phone with Barney Frank, and they were talking about another project. And then he said, you know, we've been, I've been wanting to sort of test the, the Moderna platform and see, like, if there's ever, you know, a, a, an epidemic, if we could, how fast could we produce a vaccine? So Hamilton Bennett was on the phone uh, just a couple of days before the sequence was released, and she was talking to Barney Fram from the NIH, and they were talking about this idea of how fast could Moderna put together a vaccine in an emergency if, if they needed to, and they wanted to do kind of a dry run. And at the end of the conversation, he said, well, why don't we use this new virus that's circulating in China just as a test case? And she said, great, let's do it. Ne neither of them had any idea necessarily at that point that it was there would ever be a need for this vaccine or that this sort of dry run would ever turn into anything real. But then, you know, she got off the phone and she had to wait. All they had to wait for, they didn't need the virus, they just needed that sequence. And when that sequence was shared, Moderna and other scientists around the world jumped on it and started um, trying to make 
mRNA vaccines, DNA vaccines, adenovirus, vector vaccines, the, all these new platforms uh, that can make vaccines without the virus itself. So your article in Boston Magazine, you talk about Bensel and when he realized when this was going to be a real problem of pandemic proportions. And when when did that really sink in with him and that he had an opportunity to be a real game changer in this uh, situation? Well, he had, um, you know, right after the pilot uh, with the NIH, this dry run, so to speak, had started, he got on a plane and flew to Zurich to go to uh, the, the World Economic Forum in Davos. And while he was there, he was palling around with Jeremy Farrar from the Wellcome Trust, which is sort of like the Gates Foundation for Europe, and from CEPI, which is an organization that funds vaccine research around the world. And he was with uh, the leaders of those two organizations who were getting a constant stream of information from their contacts on the ground in China. And, you know, they'd be sitting around talking and they'd turn their phones to, to show him and say, look at this. And some of the information, you know, wasn't even public at that point. And so he immediately started to realize that, that this was going to be bad, that the cat was out of the bag. I mean, he went back to his hotel room that night and just opened his laptop and looked at internet, Google, you know, did a Google flight search and looked at international flights coming out of Wuhan and saw this just interminable list scrolling down the screen. And that's when he knew it. You know, there were flights from Wuhan all over the world. And he thought to himself, this is, this is going to be 1918. That's when he became convinced. Oh, so the, the whole story is really starting to unfold. We're speaking with Catherine Elton. She's a senior editor at Boston Magazine. And we're talking about really the human elements behind development of a novel vaccine and really trying to take you through the backstory of how this is happening and unfolding in real time because it's such an important topic. We'll be back in a moment with more Talking Biotech Podcast. Would your participation in social media save lives? Early in COVID-19, we thought the world would finally gravitate towards science and evidence, especially in response to a global pandemic. However, from national leadership to conspiracy-plagued internets, it's clear we're suffering from an information pandemic as well. Now here at the Talking Biotech Podcast, we give you the information to battle disinformation around technology, as it applies mostly to agriculture and medicine. Information here allows you, the listener, to participate in broader discussions with confidence, helping to advance innovation to application. Today, all of us need to be engaging the copious nonsense that plagues social media, especially in the area of COVID-19. Crackpot claims, bad science, and poor quality publication are only deepening the pandemic, at least here in the USA. Kudos to the rest of you. So this is a call to the science-minded. Identify who you can trust. Share their content on social media networks. Join the conversation. Gently and kindly refute false information. Remember, you'll never change the mind of someone unwilling to learn, but the internet is a spectator sport. Become the trusted source of information. 
to help those that don't know who to trust. Help them realize who to trust and make better decisions that could ultimately save lives. Improving the world with a simple act of kind communication. That's what the Talking Biotech Podcast is all about. And your participation has never been more important. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Catherine Elton. She's a senior editor of Boston Magazine. And we're discussing the development of vaccines, basically on the perspective of a company called Moderna. And they're coming up with novel novel RNA-based strategies for vaccines that are being accelerated because of the COVID crisis. And uh, Catherine has written a, written at least one recent article and an older article about Moderna that really kind of lifts the curtain on what's happening behind the scenes in the development of this kind of opportunity to meet an international crisis. So you mentioned earlier that these were really starting to uh, move through human trials in phase three. Could you tell me a little bit more about the first person to get that injection and her attitude towards this? The first person to get the experimental vaccine from Moderna in phase one was Jennifer Haller. She's a woman who lives in Seattle. And she is an interesting story because she's just someone who was kind of felt a little paralyzed watching what was unfolding and really felt that she wanted to do something. Um, And she felt also, she was very clear about this. She felt that she was in a very privileged position. She could work from home. Uh, She had resources she could take this on. And so she signed up to be part of the trial. You know, her husband said to her, you know, are you sure? Should we talk about it? And she said, yeah, we can talk about it, but I'm doing it. And a friend, she had a friend who said, you know, you don't have to do this. Um, it could be dangerous. And she said, yeah, I, you know, I do have to do this. She really, really felt that she had had to do it and wanted to be a part of it. Um, and she had to sign, you know, a 45 page informed consent um, before before doing this. But she she just felt that we needed to get this vaccine process going. And 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 it was time. And and she she volunteered to take to take a shot. Uh, do you know if she's still alive and covid free? <laughs> she is. I spoke to her after her second injection, which she said she felt a little, you know, more malaise after she didn't feel any anyone anything after the first um she was in an arm of the trial she got a lower one of the i think the lowest dose they did three doses um but she felt fine and uh and she was ready to continue and to keep going with it well a lot of people will say well if if this is so safe and you're not worried about it why don't the executives of the company inject themselves <laughs> so so did uh the stefan bensel uh, inject himself with this that was a huge source of frustration for him because no one from the company is allowed to be in a trial. Um, and he, he really, he felt this sort of impotence that he couldn't, I mean, he would have, he would have absolutely, uh, taken the shot. And back in the day, you know, there were, um, when people first started, uh, developing vaccines, they would try them on their own children first. Um, and then on, you know, then move on to nieces and nephews, but they would start, as close as possible as a way of saying, you know, I really believe that this is safe. I'll do it on my kids. That is no longer uh, legal to do or possible to do. But Stefan talked about, 
you know, how frustrated he was. And it was also really moving for the people at Moderna and, and Nubar Afayan at Flagship, who's the chairman of the board at Moderna. Um, you know, when he saw the video of Jennifer Haller being injected, it was just an amazing moment for him because they don't ever see that. That It's only because of this special time we're in that, that people are interested and news is covering it. They've never seen that before. They don't get to talk to or communicate with anyone um, in a trial. So they it's there's just a wall there usually. And they could see through this one-way mirror, um, they could see her experience. And they were very, very moved by it. So she said she was injected in one of the lower dose groups. Do you know the dosage of RNA that she's being injected with? I think she got the 25 um, micrograms of the vaccine. There were three groups, uh, 25, 100, and 250. Yeah. So when you're looking at uh, micrograms, you're looking at one one thousandth of a milligram and a milligram is uh, roughly the weight of an insect wing, like a little fly wing. I mean, it's almost not existent. So you're looking at um, a millionth of a gram. So tiny amounts of RNA that are being that are being delivered. Uh, when you look at the spectrum of other companies that are in this space, what other kinds of modalities are being used to develop vaccines? And are they on the same kind of timeline? So there's a couple of other also experimental and, and new um uh, vaccine platforms in addition to messenger RNA, which Moderna is not the only company pursuing that. There are some other companies pursuing an mRNA vaccine as well. And then there's also companies that are doing something similar, but instead of injecting um, mRNA, they're injecting DNA. And then there's uh, other companies that are pursuing adeno, uh, adenovirus vector vaccines which use uh, a common cold virus, a harmless virus to shuttle DNA um, into, into the cells, um, into the human body. They're all similar in that, like what Moderna is doing, they are not injecting a live, attenuated or dead virus or a piece of a virus. They are shifting the site of the production of the vaccine to the body. They're injecting the instructions um, to the body for it to mount the immune response inside the body and essentially create the vaccine inside the body. Well, where, where's big pharma in all of this? I mean, when you read online, you see a lot of, well, this is just big pharma, you know, trying to inject us with microchips and, all, you know, you've seen the, the craziness, but where is big pharma really in the vaccine development? Well, there are um, some big pharma companies that are involved. Um, Janssen, the pharmaceutical arm of J&J, is working with um, a laboratory at Beth Israel Deaconess um, Medical School here in Boston, um, and they're doing a, working on a trial of adenovirus vector vaccines, and, and big pharma has um, gotten on board. But at the beginning, it really was these small startup biotechs that were first out of the gate um, to work on this. And Hamilton Bennett, who's a, the portfolio manager at Moderna, told me that she was on an infectious disease call that she does. I don't know if it's a monthly call or a weekly call, and there's a lot of different people. And it was the first call where, where uh, people were talking about the coronavirus out of China. And there were some uh, folks from Big Pharma on the call. And and they sort of, none of them were exactly jumping on it. And they sort of said, well, there are some biotechs going after this. So, so we'll see what the, they can do. 
Um, and she sort of, you know, under her breath, already working on it, said, yeah, you know, we'll show them what we, we'll show them what we can do. So we, that, that really did characterize uh, the, the start of it. But since then, um, you know, Big Farmer's gotten on board and some of them in collaborations with, with biotech. Because, of course, these have to be produced in massive quantities and distributed. But now it's a, you know officially a race, right? And you have a number of companies that are, I think, at 130 some at last count that are working on this that are in different phases of the of the uh, of the testing. So now, if with companies like Moderna, this has turned into a 24 seven effort, right? And so, how are they changing the work environment and compressing the time time timetable to make this go faster? been since January 13th when they got the sequence it's been around the clock and as they developed it they the reason they were able to get it out the door in 42 days is because they compressed the timetable and they did that by taking on risk when you're usually developing a vaccine um, you you do it step by step and you wait for positive results from each step um, until you move to the next step. And they didn't have that time. So they did different phases in parallel. They were already producing, um, you know, a vaccine with uh, one, you know, mRNA that they designed while waiting to see early results in the lab to see if it was working. And then they knew that they were on the right track. But if they hadn't have been, they would have lost time, they would have lost resources, they would have had to have gone back. But the potential advantage was that they could do so many things in parallel and compress the the time span, and they got lucky, and they never had to make any detours or backtrack or, or backtrack that much. Well, one one other question that I had on this is why did they choose Seattle as the place to do the testing? So that's a funny story. It actually wasn't Moderna. It was that the NIH is running the trial, and they have partners all over the country, and one of their partners is. Um, Kaiser in Seattle, and they made that decision. But that was the, you know, the source of a lot of stress for for Stefan Bansell and for others, because after they'd already chosen Seattle, all of a sudden Seattle became this, you know, it was the first hot spot you could say in the United States where there was, um, you know, significant human to human transmission early on, and they got very nervous about that because they thought. What if it gets really bad and our volunteers don't want to go into the hospital to get the injection? Um, so they scrambled and they, you know, talked to the NIH and said, you know, we we should have a backup site. And so they got a backup site up and going in Atlanta. And luckily, everything went fine. But it was just actually a huge coincidence. I mean, ideally, you want to test, um, you know, you don't want to have a lot of other you know, confounding factors going on, like a massive outbreak um, when you're in your early, early phases. Oh, where is the whole process today? So we look at clinical trials, lots of companies going through this. If everything goes well, do you have a read as to when the first availability of a vaccine might be? What last I heard what Moderna said was they were hoping by the end of the year, beginning of next year, um, there are other uh, vaccines that are in phase three or condensed phase two slash three trials. Um, you know, in total, there's 27 vaccine candidates that are in human trials right now. So either Moderna or someone else, you know, one of the other ones that are far ahead um, in, in phase two slash three um, may be ready around that time. Um, but no one has a firm date. That's uh, it will be a monumental accomplishment if it happens. 
as fast as early 2021. And, and it, it would be such a breakthrough that I think, you know, personally from the side of a technology guy who really thinks about biotech and medicine, I think it could go a long way to restoring the faith in these kinds of treatments and, and really be a game changer. And I really am polling for them. Um, you know, your article, when you originally wrote it, um, was June 4th or so this year. And that's like an eternity in pandemic times. So where is the company right now? And what is kind of the attitude with Ben Sell and others towards, um, you know, their place in history as a potential solution to this massive pandemic? I think they're all incredibly dedicated to doing this. They took a huge risk as a young biotech at the beginning um, when no one was convinced how, how bad this was going to get of shifting gears towards this um, and working so hard on it. And as a company that you know doesn't have a drug um, on the market and their first drug that gets this far to be tested in phase three, that's a huge global spotlight on them you know it'll either be a fantastic victory or it'll be a very highly watched uh failure and so um but you know they're incredibly incredibly dedicated they're growing at warp speed i think bansell described it to me as if you know you're a little kid and then you wake up as an adolescent and then the next day you're an adult and there's a lot of growing pains it's a very accelerated growth for the company and it, it, it's very stressful. It's a lot of stress on people are working around the clock at the company. It's It's been very stressful, but everyone there feels so committed to being part of this um, and and to finding a solution. And when I first met Stefan Bansell and he told me that he took a job at Moderna, this is in 2012, he was coming from the CEO of a, a large uh, diagnostics, French diagnostics company, he had a very big job. And when he told people he was taking a, a job at a, a company with no drugs and three employees, I think at the time, um, they looked at him like he was crazy. And he had said that, you know, he would only work for a startup if he thought there was a potential that it would change the world. And that's what he's been driving since since he got there. And, and I think he's still hoping that he accomplishes that. It's a really interesting thing to think about because someone goes into this idea of wanting to join a company that will change the world, but didn't know that the world would change. And now you're having a moving target that your technology kind of fell into, almost like sticking an arrow into the side of a barn and having the target form around it. And so this is a really interesting story. And, you know, for those of you who'd like to read more about it, and I'd encourage you to read the original story. It's the untold story of Moderna's race for a COVID-19 vaccine. And it appeared online on the uh, June 4th, 2020 issue of Boston Magazine in the uh, June version of the print magazine. If people want to learn more about this story or other stories in Boston Magazine by you or other authors, where should they look? You can find us on uh, Facebook, um, Instagram, and Twitter, Boston Magazine. And we have tons of uh, great long reads and, and daily news. Um, so, yeah, you should definitely follow us. Well, Catherine Elton, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. This was a really fun story to follow, a really hopeful story at a time when we all need a hopeful story. So thank you very much. Oh, it's been great chatting with you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're 250 plus episodes, 1.4 million downloads, and 
growing. So thank you very much for sharing with friends and for giving outstanding reviews on iTunes and other places where you consume podcast media. Thank you very much for joining, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us with a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.